Good morning, Awakened Saints. It's a happy Sunday. Good to have you guys here. Um, I don't know how many of you keep up with the news. Uh, if a lot of you don't, that's totally okay. I understand. Reading the news today or watching the news today can get quite frustrating and sometimes quite depressing as well. Um, but for those of you who haven't been keeping track of the news, there's been this one interesting, fascinating story that's been kind of on replay for the past month, and that's been the story of Jesse Smollett. For those of you who don't know the story, uh, Jesse, Smollett, Jesse Smollett is a young black gay actor who is most prominently in the show Empire. I don't know if you guys watch Empire on Fox, um, and uh, who last month claimed that he was attacked by two masked men, and supposedly these men tied a rope around his neck, um, and as they were beating him, were shouting racial and homophobic slurs, and one of those attackers also evidently referenced uh, Donald Trump's Make America Great MAGA um, uh, before fleeing the scene, and uh, that was not a good thing to have happen. It was something where a number of politicians and other of those in the media started tweeting about until it came out a few days later after an investigation by the Chicago police that these attacks were likely staged and not real. And evidently, uh, the actor hired uh, two assailants, and the whole event was a, uh, a, a production. It was a sham in order to elicit sympathy. But what it's actually done is it's just complicated the conversation we have around truth. It's complicated racial, LGBTQT relations and political tensions. But at the core of it, at the end of the day, what it has done is just make identifying what is true and what is not true all the more challenging. And I don't want to take this morning to share that story to Judge Jesse Smollett or whatever the case. I don't know what's going on in his life. But the story is reflective of the type of world that we live in today. A world where, it becomes, where truth becomes an increasingly complicated issue to try and sift through. It's a world where there's news, there's fake news, and then there's real news disguised as fake news. And everything just starts getting really messy and complicated. And yet, despite that, this is nothing new. What we're going through, the confusion we have, trying to discern what is true and what is not, this is not a new experience. As a matter of fact, Christians from the very beginning, early days of the church had similar problems, except their problems weren't news stories flying out on the internet and trying to discern and, and politicians accusing one another. No, their problem was that they were trying to define, especially these early church leaders, were trying to define what is true about God and what is not. And the problem wasn't media or, or politics. The problem was that we had false teachers coming around sharing their own ideas about what is true about God and what is not. And so these church fathers and these church leaders, as they're seeing young Christians rising up all the time and being baptized, and yet no convenient way of disseminating information. They weren't able to just post their beliefs and have millions of people read them. That's just not how it worked. So in trying to disseminate information, things got a bit confusing. 
And that was a challenge that was facing these early church leaders. And they came up with a brilliant solution. Their solution was to develop, to write down creeds. And creed, what a creed is, by, in the terms of a definition, creeds are basically formalized confessions of faith. They were written to be able to say we are going to simply and clearly define the essentials of what we believe and what it means to be a Christian or not to be a Christian. And we wanted to write it simply enough that those who would read them would be empowered to memorize them, to have them them sink into. Because at the time, I know it's crazy to think about, but at the time, in the days of the early church, not everyone had a Bible. As a matter of fact, very few had Bibles because there was no printing press, right? To get a scroll, a copy of the scriptures, it was going to have to be handwritten, very expensive. And if you weren't a religious leader, you probably didn't have one. Even if you were, you probably only had fragments and not entire books. So it's not like everyone had a Bible and they could read on their own. And so these church fathers developed what's called creeds, formalized statements of faith, formalized ways of defining what we believe. And the people who got them were saying, this is what it means to be a Christian, memorize these things. And then in our weekly gatherings, we would expound upon what these mean. We're in a different world today as a church, but the challenges I hope that you're seeing of defining what is true and what is not are the same. It still gets murky. It still gets messy. And sometimes what's messy for us isn't the fact that we don't have a sense of what is true or not. Sometimes the issue is we don't know what's important and what's not important. We turn secondary issues into primary issues and choose to divide ourselves over those things. So what we've chosen to do as a church is to talk about these beliefs. And that's what this series, at the end of the day, that's what this series is about. Our series, Going Through Creed, seven weeks, our goal during this series is to talk about truth. Not how to implement faith in your lives, not how to improve your marriages, not how to walk by faith, not how to build disciplines. We have plenty of series that take through those. And I know some of you are like, you know, sometimes I'm wondering about this series. What's the practical takeaway application for me? Here's the practical application. Learn what it is that you must believe in order to be a Christian, right? The essentials of the faith. And then in light of those beliefs, how do they shape the way I see the world? How do they shape the way I see God and we see God as a church community? That's what this series is about. Being able to define that which is true and essential about the faith. And so over the course of the past few weeks, we've actually gone through, we're in the middle of that series now. Two weeks ago, we started, or three weeks ago, two weeks ago, we started uh, with the first week talking about, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. The second week we went through, and in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so in week one, we talked about the idea of who is God. When we say he is God, what does that mean? What does that entail? What does that encompass? And then why is it so important that he's the one that we look to as having created life and created the earth and the heavens and everything in them? Last week, we talked about the essential qualities of Jesus Christ and why it was so important for us to understand That he is both fully God and fully man. Why he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And this morning, we're going to go through the next portion of the Apostles' Creed. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. And before, two things before we go into this. The first is that the, for those of you who haven't been a part of uh, the past few weeks or maybe haven't been a part of our church for an extended period of time, this is what we call an awakened Q&A series. And that means if during the course of the teaching there are any thoughts or comments or questions that you might have, feel free to text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. And we'll try and take some time at the end of the teaching to tackle those as we can. No promises that we'll have the best answers on everything, just an opportunity to interact and engage as a church family. The second thing is that our goal during this time is not simply walk through the Apostles' Creed as a framework for how to be able to define these core and essential beliefs, but also that we embed them in our hearts and in our minds as well, that we remember them. And so before we dive in any further, I want us to read through the lines that we've covered together already. So if you guys will repeat after me, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe. And in Jesus Christ, our God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Awesome. So this week, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Let's begin there. So when you read the Apostles' Creed, when you have them up here, I think what's fascinating is how quickly we move from the birth of Jesus to his death. Not a lot of talk about his life in between. Nothing really is shared about Jesus' life. Nothing in the Apostles' Creed about the miracles that he performed. Nothing about his 12 disciples, his amazing teachings. And nothing really about his life except for this one line, suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's the only line about Jesus' life, suffered under Pontius Pilate, which is crazy because if you're thinking, if I were to write one line, just one line, one statement about Jesus' life, that probably would not have been the one that I would have chosen. So why did the early church fathers choose to write this one, suffered under Pontius Pilate? And the answer is, I don't know. Right? I'm not kidding. I really don't know. That being said, I will say what I personally appreciate about the apostles and the early church fathers writing these lines. I appreciate that they chose to put Jesus' suffering front and center. That they understood that from the very beginning, the suffering of Jesus, the suffering of the Messiah was going to be a central part of his story. And it was also going to be a point of connection between the Jesus story and our stories, or the stories of many of those who were part of the early church and enduring some of the suffering and persecution and trials that they were. In the book of Isaiah, as the prophet was looking ahead to the coming Messiah, he shares this about him in an extended passage. This passage was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. And it says in Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 3, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. 
It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment for, from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away, but no one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. I want to read that again so you caught it, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hand. Jesus suffered, and it was always supposed to be this way. Jesus didn't come to earth, born of the, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, lived 30 years of life, began his ministry, and his ministry three years, brought before Pontius Pilate, about to be crucified, and wonder, wait, what? Is this what's supposed to be happening, God? It wasn't a surprise to him in any way, shape, or form. This was what was supposed to happen from the very beginning. And again, this is not necessarily the image of Jesus that we would have put front and center if we were to put one line of who Jesus was front and center, what his life represented, we would have written something very different. We would have written Jesus loves us. We would have written Jesus saves us. We might have written Jesus blesses us. Jesus forgives us. Jesus blesses us with every spiritual, every blessing, every good thing that we have comes from him. These are the things that we might have written. Because that's a reflection of what modern-day Christianity looks like. But that was not at the forefront of how the early church saw Jesus and understood Jesus. The suffering of Jesus is what empowered their faith. And you know what's interesting is when you think about Jesus' life and this idea of suffering, it should be that idea that Jesus suffered that stuns us. Why should we be surprised at Jesus being able to perform miracles? He's the son of God, right? If he can't perform miracles, then what type of son of God is he? We shouldn't be surprised at his amazing teachings. He's the son of God, teaching God's truth. It shouldn't be any surprise that we got things messed up and he had to take the time to correct and teach us what was truly on God's heart. But his suffering, the idea that Jesus would come into the world and allow his life to be, to be born into an uncaring world, uh, to suffer as an innocent at the hands of those who are guilty, to be tempted, to allow himself to be tempted when he could have destroyed the tempter. So the question that arises is, why suffer? What is the point of Jesus' suffering? And in the book of 1 Peter, the apostle and close friend of Jesus writes to a group of people who are also suffering under unjust 
treatment. In other words, Peter is saying, I'm writing these words of encouragement to those of you who are suffering. The Bible, if you read that passage, he's talking to slaves who are suffering under unjust masters. And Paul's encouragement to them is this, 1 Peter chapter 2. For God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his footsteps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. You see what Peter says here? He says one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons why Jesus suffered is to set an example for us on how we are to respond when we suffer. He has given us an example to follow, to teach us that in the midst of suffering, there is a right way to endure and persevere through pain, to persevere through hardship. And that way is not the same as the way the world teaches us. The world teaches us that we should avoid suffering, that we should minimize pain, that we should medicate ourselves through pain, that we should rage and fight against suffering, especially if that suffering seems to be unjust. That's how the world teaches us to respond to suffering. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way I'm teaching you. Jesus shows us a different path. And what Jesus says is that in the midst of suffering, suffering is not designed to be an excuse to engage in doing evil things. Suffering is not an excuse to harbor evil thoughts against another person. Suffering is not a reason to sin, it's not a reason to deceive, and it's not a reason for seeking revenge. Suffering is something you endure. Suffering is something, an opportunity for you to put your trust in God who always judges justly. You know what else Jesus' suffering does? Jesus' suffering reminds us that we all go through it, and even God himself was not exempt. And so in the midst of our suffering, none of us can ever say, well, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. God can't relate to the pain I'm experiencing right now. And so it's like, no, that is absolutely not true. The example of Jesus' suffering shows us, reveals to us, sets an example that, yeah, I've been there too. Not to give you all the answers, but to remind you that when you're going through it, I'm going to be right there with you. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. So Jesus did more than suffer, and the statement here is suffering under Pontius Pilate. Does that seem weird? To any of you all, when you read this and the idea that here is the essentials of the faith written down by these early church fathers in the Apostles' Creed, and they actually put Pontius Pilate into the mix. You know, only two names are in the Apostles' Creed apart from God's, and they are Mary and Pontius Pilate. We can probably understand why Mary's in there, because she's Jesus' mama. And you kind of have to put your mama's name in there, I guess, if you're talking about something essential uh, to your faith in life. But why Pontius Pilate? After all, he wasn't an important man. He was the Roman governor of Judea from 26 to 36, 37 AD. And Judea at the time was a rather unimportant and almost forgettable province. It's kind of like today being the governor of North Dakota rather than the governor of Florida, right? Sorry if you came from North Dakota. I just kind of had to pick something small and random, so. 
So Pilate was on this grand stage of the Jesus story for only four, or I'm sorry, four hours or so. And yet his name is more familiar to us than the names of many of the greatest women and men in history. Why? Why was Pontius Pilate so important that these early church fathers felt the need to include him in this Apostles' Creed? So a number of, a couple of weeks ago, I shared about one of the things that makes Christianity a bit unique. And what makes Christianity unique from all the other different religions, all the other different faiths, and all the other different belief systems in the world today is that Christianity is not simply based upon what we believe. That's what all the other religions have in common. They have a set of beliefs. There's a lot of commonality and overlap, and then there's some distinct distinctives and uniquenesses about them. But every other religious faith and system is built upon what we believe. That's not true of Christianity. Christianity has beliefs, but the foundation of the Christian faith is built upon a person, Jesus Christ, and an act of history, his death, burial, and resurrection. You take those away, the entire Christian faith falls apart. And so because of that, in naming Pontius Pilate, what the apostles, what these early church fathers did is they anchored Jesus in history. In naming a Roman prefect who lived and chose crucifixion for Jesus, told the world that Jesus is a historical figure whom these things happen to, and he's not some myth, he's not some made-up story. Now, that doesn't stop people from claiming that Jesus is a myth. That still happens even today. People say, well, how do we know that Jesus really existed? And a number of, of different things that challenge whether or not Jesus ever lived, especially from different skeptics, and that makes some sense. Because again, if you're skeptical of Christianity and you want to strip Christianity down, what would you do? You'd undermine the historicity of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's what some do today. But then something really cool happened in 1961, in June of 1961. Something that the early church fathers who wrote this line, suffered under Pontius Pilate, probably never anticipated or expected. So in June of 1961, Italian archaeologists led by a man named Dr. Antonio Frova were ex was excavating an area uh, found in this, of this ancient theater built by Herod the Great back around 22 BC. And during their excavation, they found this limestone block. I should have put a picture up there. But they found this limestone block that, had, that was a, a part, a fragment of a later building, likely a temple. And on that limestone block was this inscription, which I'm not going to read because my Latin sucks. But translated from Latin to English, what this inscription reads is, to the divine Augusti, this Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. That's right. This damaged limestone block found in June of 1961 by Antonio Frova and the archaeological team provided proof that Pontius Pilate was a real person. And not only was he a real person who existed at a real time in history, but that he was actually the prefect, the governor of Judea in the Roman province of Judea from AD 26 to AD 36, anchored in history. It's called the Pilot Stone, and today, if you wanted to go see it, you can actually go see it in an Israeli museum in the city of Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? 
The Apostles' Creed was written about 1,800 years. That's 1,800 years before this discovery. They had no way of knowing this was going to happen, but they wrote for the same reason, right, to anchor the story of Jesus in a moment in time in history because they understood the importance that distinctive about our Christian faith. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's a figure anchored in history. The Jesus story is not a once upon a time story. The suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, this is, histori- this is history, historical fact. This stuff really happened. And the story of Jesus is not a myth, it's not a saga, it's not a parable, it's not an illustration, it's not an illusion, it's not a legend. It's a description of actual events anchored irrefutably into the annals of history. And there it sits as an eternal foundation for our faith. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Was crucified, died, and was buried. You know what is remarkable about the Jesus story as well? In addition to the fact that it's anchored in history, not only is the Jesus story, not only is Jesus Christ historical and true, but it's also the story about how we as Christians worship and honor a man whose entire life was a descent into humility and disgrace. Did you catch that? That is completely the opposite of how we respect and honor people today. Today, we look at people in history that we would say, I want to be like, we respect and we honor. We tend to honor the ones who accomplished something great, who did something great. And yet, Jesus is completely the opposite. We worship and honor a man whose entire life was about descending into humiliation and disgrace. From his godhood in heaven entering into flesh and bone, from his becoming a human into being suffered, tormented, and killed by those he could have wiped out with a word. In the book of Philippians, the apostle Paul describes it this way. He said, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took up the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. You know something else that's remarkable? Humility was not considered an admirable trait until Jesus. Before then, we didn't think about humility as an admirable trait, as something to aspire to. It's until Jesus, he changed everything. The noble, powerful, sinless son of God died, was crucified, voluntarily allowed himself to be killed. Jesus suffered and died to secure salvation for all those who would believe and put our trust and put our hope in him. So what does that mean that Jesus died? I mean, are we saying that God literally died? And the answer to that question is yes. But not in an annihilation, end of existence type of death. That's sometimes how we define death, is that once you die, every trace of you is completely wiped out. That's not what death means, right? Even today for us, if we die, that doesn't mean every trace of us is wiped from existence. We have family members and people who love and care for us who remember us, right? Who will celebrate things in our memory, 
That's not what death means. Instead, what death is, death is at its core separation. The way we talk about death, if we were to boil down what death means, death is a separation of body from soul and spirit from God. That's what death means. And by that definition, yes, Jesus died. His body died. His heart stopped. In the book of Matthew, chapter 27, it says that Jesus gave up his spirit. So yes, body was separated from soul and spirit from God. And as Christians, it is absolutely essential that we believe that Jesus died. That's why these early church fathers wrote this into the Apostles' Creed. Why? Well, first, it's kind of hard to believe in a resurrection if we don't believe Jesus died. That's kind of a necessary quality. You can't rise from the dead if you weren't dead in the first place. So for the resurrection to have meaning, yes, Jesus had to actually die. But secondly... With Jesus' death, he actually accomplished some pretty amazing and remarkable things with his death. I mean, there was the tearing apart of the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple and sanctuary. That had tremendous significance. Darkness filled the land. That has tremendous significance. And one of the other things that's fascinating about what Jesus' death accomplished is written by the author of Hebrews. And what he wrote is one of those accomplishments and why Jesus had to die was to break the power of Satan. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Because God's children are human beings, that's us, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who also had, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And what this passage is saying is Jesus was not fully human. And if he didn't actually die, then he would be disqualified as Savior. And we do not believe that that is true. Because if that's true, then the whole purpose of Jesus coming to earth would have been useless as well. What we believe to be true is that Jesus came took on flesh, as God took on flesh, fully God, fully man, was killed on a Roman cross, taking on the burden of our sins and the consequences of our sin in order to redeem us from death, to bring us from death to life. And that fact, grounded in history, does something fascinating, doesn't it? Now it says, okay, there is no question about whether or not this happened. There's no question about Jesus' heart. There's no question about what he was attempting to do. The only question that's in front of us right now is, will you believe? That's the essence of the Christian faith. That's the essence of what it means, what the gospel is. Here's the story. Will you believe? In the book of 1 Peter, uh, Jesus' friend says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. In Galatians 2, My old life has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself me. So before we're going to wrap up, and before we do, I want to remind you this is an Awaken Q&A series, so if you have any questions, thoughts, or comments, feel free to go ahead and text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. It's been on every slide and should be on the one behind me, up at the top. And as you're doing so, I want to close with this, uh, 
and so, so I don't know how common this is anymore, but I remember when I was a college student in Gainesville, and uh, I became a Christian at 16, so my college experience was, I was still a very young Christian, and one of the things that was impressed upon me uh, was the importance of going out and sharing the gospel. Uh, Sybil was one of those who led me into that, that belief, and I was terrified to do so. And back in the day when we shared the gospel, and I don't know if you still do it today, we used little tracks. You guys know what tracks are? You know, there are these little booklets that kind of have this catchy phrase in the front that kind of gets your attention, and inside has this testimony, and then walks through a simple version of uh, the gospel. And so, uh, and so one of the tracks that we use pretty commonly is, was, what must I do to be saved? And so what was interesting is there's this other track that came out that I never actually used, but I thought it was pretty interesting. And it said, what must I do to be lost? It said, what must I do, what must I do to be lost? And when you opened up the track, it was blank inside. It was just white page. What must I do to be lost? Nothing. There's nothing that you have to do in order to be lost, right? We are, we come into this world, we're separated from God. And I share that because when we talk about this idea of suffered under Pontius Pilate, you know, it was crucified and dead buried. And I think when you look at the, the figure of Pontius Pilate, one of the things, he's such an, he seems like such an empathetic figure, right? That Pontius Pilate, he knew Jesus was innocent. He said, I find no guilt in this man. It wasn't like it was Pilate's fault that Jesus was crucified and killed, right? And I'm like, yeah, maybe. But what was Pilate's great failing? Pilate's great failing wasn't necessarily that he condemned Jesus to death, is that he did nothing to stop it. And sometimes we don't think about that. Sometimes we live these Christian lives and we think, well, you know, I'm a good person. I'm not doing bad things. So yeah, of course I'm a good Christian. And sometimes we forget or we neglect the fact that sometimes doing nothing is the worst sin that we can commit when we have the opportunity to do otherwise. I told you earlier, I shared with you earlier that this series, Creed, was designed to be a series where we talk about truth. And some of us in this room, we've like learned these truths because we've been a part of church for a number of different years and we know these things. There's nothing in here that's been a huge surprise to you this morning. And that's fine, that's fantastic. I just want to remind you that these truths aren't being shared with you so you tuck them away someplace in your brain and say, oh yeah, that's right, I remember that now, cool. Truth was designed to transform your life, to change how you see God, to transform how you see the world, to transform how you see yourself, and to transform your understanding of your responsibility as a child of God. And I want to challenge you as we go through this series that you not neglect that responsibility, that you not ignore that obligation the way Pilate did. So let's tackle some Q&A hell, and on the third day he rose again. I think there's going to be some fascinating things to discuss, so if you guys are good with saving some of these questions and we hold them over next week, I'll try and make sure, make it a point to end a bit earlier, and we'll tackle those next week. So uh, with that, I'm going to close this out in prayer. We'll run through announcements, and then we will wrap up our time. Lord, thank you so much for this time, for this morning, for the opportunity to come into your presence and to enjoy you, God, to be able to rest, to build our lives upon that which is true and essential to our faith. And Lord, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, encourage us, refresh us, and renew us in you, Jesus. We love you, and thank you, and pray that you empower us to not only believe rightly, but to live in a way that honors and pleases you as well this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to go through announcements. And and I, I, hey, how are you?